from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Hear the word of God. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May you be seated. Before we uh, get any further, uh, Archippus. Anybody here Archippus? Is there, is there an Archippus here? Okay. I was just wanting to make sure because... I want to make sure that command wasn't missed. If there's somebody named Archippus, you have some very important instructions in our sermon today, or in our, at least our passage. Uh, I wanted to draw your attention just to a couple of things that are, are about to happen. First of all, next week, this is the end of Colossians, we're going to be going back to Genesis and looking at chapters 4 through 11 uh, in a series that we're going to call Far and Away. And the reason we call it Far and Away is in Genesis 4 through 11, we really see uh, the effects of sin, that it makes us far from God and it orients us away from him. But we will also see in those passages just how far-reaching the grace of God is. So I think this will be a great illuminating series. And uh, we have postcards that look just like this out in the gathering area. If you have a friend that you'd like to invite to church, this might be a great way to pass on the news of what's going on here. Uh, Then also, uh, today is Sermon 100 that uh, I have preached uh, here at River Community Church. Yeah, it just went by like that, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, okay, that's not what I meant. But uh, anyway, Sermon 100, and um, uh, Kevin and I have uh, worked at putting together a a podcast uh, that's going to start this week. Uh, And what it's going to do is it's going to re-air sermons from the past. And uh, we're going to start with uh, 10 sermons to hear again. And as I have listened to them, I can say this much. Whatever you think of me right now, I have gotten a little bit better. So 
So that will be at least something to, uh, to discover. But if, if uh, you'd like to subscribe to that, we'll give you an email this week that will allow you to do that. Now let us, let us look more intently at, at what's in front of us from, from the Apostle Paul. But first, a prayer. Father, we come again to your word. It is holy. It is living and active. And Father, it is given for our good. This passage, which seems uh, so specific and maybe historically conditioned, is yet timeless for us. And it gives us an image of what you desire us to be as a local church. So, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that your spirit would just reign over us, bringing us to attention and to readiness to apply. Father, I pray that anointing of the spirit on me as I preach that it may be faithful, that it may be true, that it may be clear. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are finishing today this uh, tour through the book of Colossians. We were in it for just about six months, and I really have enjoyed going through this piece by piece and, and seeing the crystal clear gospel message that Jesus is enough uh, we've seen that from, from every paragraph. It is, Jesus is enough for our salvation. Jesus is enough for our daily life. As we come to the very last section in Colossians, we come into this section uh, that is pretty typical in Paul's letters. It's, it's kind of final greetings. It's a, a section where he lists off some people that they will know and some people that want to say hello and just a few last things that he wants that uh, church to know about before he closes the letter. And this reminds us a very important fact about Colossians. We can get in the habit of reading Colossians uh, in, in Scripture, in our Bible, as, as kind of this removed document that comes from on high, uh, these, these beautiful, familiar statements and exhortations and we can kind of see it as, as kind of Bible land uh, that, 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 that was, was beautiful. And, and uh, you know, Paul had this amazing uh, connection and was able to write these inspired words. But when we come to the end of Colossians, it reminds us that Colossians was landed in a local church. It was written with a congregation, a particular congregation that was probably smaller than River Community Church. It was probably a house church or two, and it was written to them. And so Paul reminds us that what he writes in Colossians is a corporate letter, is a letter to be read and heard together and to be applied together. The church of Colossae was a particular church. It was a local church. I don't know what Rome used for an address system, but it would have an address on the map. And what made it a local church was it was a collection of many Christ worshipers. And in this last passage, Paul not only shows us how historical and real the words are that he has written, but he shows us that these words are meant to be displayed and lived out by the local church. He ends focusing his letter towards the local church to remind us that it is the local church that displays the message, Jesus is enough, visibly, 
to those who are in the church and to those who are outside the church. We are like an embassy that tells the world there is a king who reigns and you can meet him and hear him and receive him. In the the, uh, second century, just about 30 or 40 years after Paul writes Colossians, there was a a Roman governor named Pliny uh, who was dealing with the Christian problem, that there were so many Christians in his community that that, that the temples and the uh, worship services for the pagan gods were pretty much deserted because these local churches had become so prominent and multiplying in the community. Pliny was dealing with the same area that we find Colossae in. And so he writes this letter asking the emperor Trajan, what do you want me to do with these Christians? Because they are a Roman nuisance. How do we get rid of them? And uh, that part of the letter is interesting for historical reasons. But in writing that letter, he shares what he has seen when he talks about these Christians. And I want to share what he has written. Pliny writes, Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to God and to bind themselves by oath, not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again and to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this they affirmed they had ceased to do after my edict by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities but also to the villages and farms. That's a second century report on the local church, on the influence, the disruption that these local churches had. And what were they doing? They were just meeting together, singing songs, having what looked like a completely ordinary meal. And yet that local church was spreading and multiplying and endangering what they considered to be the way of life in the Roman culture. So much so that they became the ire of Rome. But it's, it's not to be lost that it's just the local church doing and being exactly what you are doing and being when you are here together. You see, just showing up displays Christ. Just saying, I am part of a church and count me in it displays Christ. And it is a witness. God has made the local church his primary place for displaying the beauty of Christ to the world. In the local church, you meet Christ who is real, who is present, who is 
powerful. Moreover, God has in his wisdom made the local church a demonstration of his wisdom to the unseen spiritual powers that are watching down on this world. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that there are spiritual powers that are hostile to God watching church and being humiliated by the power and demonstration of Christ on display. Our being here is winning a spiritual war you can't even see. It is fascinating and tantalizing what that means. And so what I want us to focus on as we finish Colossians today, as we look at this passage, is to focus on what a privilege gathering as Christ's people in a particular place to be together is. That we would grasp the significance that our gathering together has for glorifying God in the heavens. And that we would treasure it. Paul here, as he concludes the letter, in a very gentle way, calls us to prioritize gathering together by reminding us what we are really doing each week, what we are displaying to the world, and what we are showing to one another. Paul shows in this passage how our gathering together as the local church displays the beauty of Christ. We are going to see three facets that he brings out in these closing verses of the beauty of Christ that is shown most preciously because of the local church being gathered together. We're going to see that the beauty of Christ is displayed in that in in here we display Christ's reconciliation. Here we display Christ's unity. And here we display Christ's presence. Let us look at these each in turn. We'll look at verses 7 to 9 as we see that it displays Christ's reconciliation. Now, as we have been going through Colossians, we have seen the theme of reconciliation being quite prominent. Paul has announced that the gospel that he preaches is a gospel of reconciliation in Christ. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verses 21 to 22. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The gospel message is that you are reconciled, that though you were wayward, that though you were hostile in mind, that though you were sinful, Christ has accomplished reconciliation. He has removed all your separation and made you one with God the Father. You are reconciled. We have seen that Jesus is enough to fully reconcile us. In Jesus, you are holy and blameless before him. So as he has made that message, as he has impressed that point upon the Colossians, he concludes in these closing words by calling the church 
to display Christ's reconciliating power to one another. How, how does he do that? Well, he brings up two examples of reconciliation. The first he brings up by mentioning the name Onesimus in verse 9. And the second by mentioning the man Mark in verse 10. Both of these characters, both of these historical persons, we know something about from the rest of the New Testament that they were in conflict, that they were in uh, unreconciled states. When we look at the story of Onesimus, we've actually preached uh, on Onesimus uh, about a year ago. It'll be part of the podcast. Uh, But Onesimus is the uh, primary occasion for the letter that is written to Philemon. You see, the book of Colossians was put in an envelope with a second letter, a personal letter written to a man named Philemon, a, a, a leader of a house church. And the, the story is that Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who stole from him and then deserted him and then ran away from him. And that person, Onesimus, runs into Paul who is in prison. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus and then says, the gospel calls you to reconcile with Philemon. And so Onesimus, a slave without any rights and much reason to be afraid, is sent back to his owner Philemon to ask for reconciliation. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul asks in the most diplomatic and delicate ways, that you need to reconcile with Onesimus. He says these words to Philemon, verse 16. He says that of Onesimus, that you might have him back, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You see, Paul is, is sending Onesimus back, and he is saying to Philemon, the owner, he is no longer property. He is your brother. You are no longer his his master uh, per se. You are now family with him. And receive him back with the, 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 the tools of reconciliation that you have in the gospel. And so we have here a picture of reconciliation, a picture of reconciliation that the whole church plays a part in. Look carefully again at verse 9. What does Paul say To the church about Onesimus, he says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Who is one of you. Onesimus, this this man who has probably been uh, ridiculed and and, and slurred and uh, made a byword over the last several months, he is coming back. He is one of you. When this letter is written, there is Onesimus in the church. He is standing there. And Paul the apostle says to this group of people who did not know Onesimus as a brother, receive him. He is one of you. He is a beloved brother. In doing that, do you see what the church displays? 
It displays that the reconciliation of the gospel is not just me and Jesus. It's me and all of Jesus' people. And so in this local church, the world sees Onesimus, who should have gotten the death penalty for his treatment, being instead welcomed back and treated as an equal in the church. You see reconciliation on display. But also we have the mention of Mark. Mark is the same person that has, uh, uh, that has written the gospel of Mark. His name is John Mark in the book of Acts. But if you follow carefully the story of John Mark, you will realize that there was a moment in time where Mark was on Paul's list of not good to work with, not a fellow worker, not worth my time. There's a, an episode in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts where Barnabas and Paul, who had been best friends and, and co-laborers in the gospel and in the mission field, actually have a break apart, a, a division over the question of, should John Mark continue with us? Paul insisted, based on what he thought was, was unreliable and unfaithful behavior on a previous mission trip, that no, we are not going to take Mark with us. And Barnabas said, no, I, I can't leave Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas separate. Acts reveals to us a, a division, a tension, a, a personal conflict that was deep enough to separate two apostles. But then what do we see here in the close of Colossians? We see Paul re-extending the arm of fellowship of ministry by saying to the Colossians, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. You see, Paul is, is indicating in those words that the gospel has, has worked its way out to reconcile Mark and Paul back together. I don't exactly know what happened, but Paul and Mark are now ministry partners again. It has overcome a deep personal conflict. And Mark being sent there and Mark being uh, commended there is evidence of Christ's power of reconciliation. In both of these, these are, these are three-dimensional real cases of conflict, of hurt, of anger, being overcome and remedied by reconciliation, apologies, and forgiveness. And where is that most seen? Where is that being put on display? It's being put on display in the church. It's being seen. You see, the church makes this power of the gospel visible. This power of the gospel of reconciliation because that reconciliation is the grace that makes us reconcilers. As Paul told us in uh, Colossians 3.13, let me read that again. In the church, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul reminds us in, in this story of reconciliation that conflicts and sin, they still happen in the church. There's still a lot of messy people in the church. 
And there's a lot of messiness in the church. It's not the absence of messiness that makes the church display the glory of Christ. It is what the church does with the messiness that displays the glory of Christ. Because the way the world deals with conflict and messes is to divide and separate and slur. But what the church displays is that's where Christ's power is demonstrated because we forgive and apologize and reconcile. We work to be together even when some of us aren't as enjoyable as others. That's just a bare fact of being together. We stick it out. We work it out. We forgive and reconcile. And in so doing, the local church is the place where the message of Christ's reconciliation and its power is displayed. What does the world see? It sees the gospel alive in that situation. About 15 years ago, there was a heinous shooting of an Amish schoolhouse. A deranged man went in and shot 10 elementary-aged schoolgirls. Five of them died. It was a, it was a national scar. It was, it was horrifying. It was a moment again where our depravity was, was displayed. It was an Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And everybody thought, wow. What's going to happen? How is this going to be dealt with? The world was knocked on its heels when this Amish community responded to this heinous act of violence with forgiveness. They responded to the widow and to that little family by paying for the killer's funeral and by giving money to help that widow survive and sustain herself. They responded in a way that the world could not make sense of. They responded with an unworldly grace and forgiveness, the power of reconciliation. And the story today remains, how did they do that? You see, the gospel is a visible display of the beauty of Christ, especially in reconciliation. This is the place where forgiveness and reconciliation is displayed and the glory for it is given to Christ alone. Beloved, gathering together testifies that we are committed to being together, to reconciling, to peace. And that is a powerful display. But second, we see that it also displays Christ's unity. Paul is announced in this Uh, letter, that the gospel that he preaches is is a gospel of unity in Christ. Most powerfully, we we see in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 11, where he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, Paul, when he preaches the gospel, makes it clear that we are one people for one reason. Christ is our Lord. That is why we are here. That is why we gather. Jesus is enough 
to make us a family. He binds us more powerfully than our differences can separate. That is what Paul wants us to live in. And so Paul closes this letter to the Colossians with a calling to the church to display this unity of Christ. How does he do that? Well, in verses 10 through 14, he lists the greetings of six individuals. And what is interesting about the six individuals that he lists is that the first three are Jews. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, now called Justice. They are described as of the circumcision, which is to describe them as Jews, or of Jewish origin. And then the other three names are Gentiles, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Three people who come from a Jewish background, three people who come from a Gentile background. All sending their greetings to the same place, to the same people. Greetings, grace to you, fellowship to you, is what is being declared in the words greetings. And so these greetings from three, uh, from, from Jew and Gentile, two groups of people who have been separated and who have kept themselves against one another for generations, for millennia, are now working together to greet one group of people. These greetings to Colossae show the oneness, the unity in the Lord that Paul has been expounding in the letter. Remember Pliny's uh, letter to Trajan at the beginning of, of our message. What, what was he most remark, uh, uh, remarked about the most? He, he said uh, these words, especially because of the number involved for many persons of Every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. He says, if we come down heavy on Christianity, you're going to take out somebody from everybody. Because there's no, there's no click here. There's no distinction. It's not a group of the rich. It's not a group of the poor. It's not a group of women. It's not a group of men. It's not a group of the free. It's not a group of the slaves. It's called people from every background. And that's an amazing testimony to the lordship of Christ overall. It is only Christ that brings these people together. And so when a, a local church comes together from all the different backgrounds, from all the, 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 the different um, social areas that we mingle in and live in all the rest of our life. I mean, how, how many of us run into each other more than here? How many times do we find this group of people together except here? The reason that we don't just kind of accidentally end up at Walmart or accidentally show up at the same bowling alley or whatever is because we are people of multiple interests and multiple lives that go in very different directions. But we all come together here because we have the most powerful thing in common. Christ is Lord. And it is when we come together, even though we have reasons to be elsewhere, that we display publicly 
Christ alone is Lord over all. As Paul says again in chapter 3, verse 15, this is what we live out. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You see, it's the Lord of Christ who has called us together in one body, and it is Christ who has witnessed when we come together for him alone. Third, third, when the local church displays the beauty of Christ. How does it do that? It displays the beauty of Christ by displaying Christ's presence. By displaying Christ's presence. Paul has announced again and again in Colossians that the gospel he preaches is a gospel of Christ's presence. That's part of what's going on every time he uses the words in Christ. He says you live in Christ. Christ is present with you. He says that again and again. But even more, in in chapter 1, verse 27, we are told this, this fascinating truth. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the message of the gospel is that we don't have to reach up and climb up and, and ascend to God by good works or, or by, by merits or by some sort of credit system. The good news of the gospel is that he has come down. He has incarnated himself. He has made himself flesh amongst us so that all we have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And that message is brought to bear upon the world by the very fact that the church exists. The local church displays Christ's presence in this world. Why? Because we are his body. The church only exists because we are his body. And so in verses 15 to 18, Paul shows us how the church displays Christ's presence. It shows Christ's presence in three ways. First, it shows that he is here. It shows that he is here. Paul says in verse 15 to Nympha, the church in her house. The church, or as we should say, the body of Christ in her house. You see, the church says Jesus is here. That Jesus is local. He is not far away or hard to find. He is here. Second, we see that the local church displays his presence by showing that he is ruling. He is here and he is ruling. How do we see that? Because his word is proclaimed in the local church. Paul exhorts the Colossians to uh, take this letter that he has written and read it among you. And then take it to the church of Laodicea and make sure that it is read among you and vice versa. The the letter of Colossians, Paul knows, is holy writ. It was made under inspiration. And so he is saying, read this word among you. There is a, a corporateness about the word of God that is important. Hearing it together, hearing it side by side. 
we see that is where Christ is ruling because his word, his will is proclaimed. And also, his rule is is made visible in the fact that it is here that we show our obedience. And so Paul says to this man in verse 17, Archippus, make sure you do what you're supposed to do in the Lord. You see, when the church submits and obeys the word of Christ, when it comes to uh, the, the worship service and conforms its life to the preaching of the word, it is showing that Christ is presently ruling right here. He is here, he is ruling, and third, the local church so- shows that Christ is present because he is here full of grace. Paul ends this letter in verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Grace be with you. The last thing Paul wants the Colossians to know and to dwell upon is that in them and with them is the divine grace. Grace be with you. It's with them. It's not something they have to go out and get. It is there. It dwells with them. God's grace is there. Christ's presence is full of grace. That is the the, the most aware thing that we experience in the corporate body, in the local church. God's grace. My friends, I I think that is a beautiful reminder. Our gathering together serves to remind each one of us and tells the world that Christ's grace is real, sufficient, and offered freely to you. God's grace is given in abundance here. It is given in abundance to the church, to all who call upon the name of the Lord. God's grace is with us. I I know as a pastor that we go through life and we get knocked down. We struggle with, with illnesses. We struggle with fears. We struggle with stresses. We have 10,000 things in our life that are pulling us away from resting and trusting in Christ. But when we come together When you come for someone else, that person is able to see a reflection of God's grace. What do I mean by that? I mean this simply. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed. Sometimes it's hard to get to church. Sometimes it's hard to believe this is where you should be. But then you are there, and the grace of God surrounding you through brothers and sisters who are holding the Christ light up for you higher than you can hold it for yourself, lets you know Christ is present and I am not alone. God's grace is with us. And you know how you get that? Just by showing up. Just by showing up. And just by showing up, the rest of the world says, something's going on there. Why is that parking lot filling up? It is because we testify that Christ's presence is here and full of grace. Beloved, what an honor 
it is to be part of a local church. We, as a local church, display the beauty of Christ by displaying Christ's reconciliation, Christ's unity, and Christ's presence. We display the beauty of Christ, the hope of the world, by gathering in his name. Our gathering together is noticed. The parking lot filled on Sunday morning is noticed. The priority that you give to worshiping is noticed. I was thinking about, uh, um, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but uh, in 1814, let's go back to that golden era every now and then, Fort McHenry was under attack in the Battle of 1812 by the British. And it was a fearsome battle. It was a scary battle. It was lots of cannon fire. And in this fort, a man we, I expect you know the name of, Francis Scott Key was. And uh, he was watching this battle and all its fearsomeness and all the uh, kabooms and blasts and and uh, the, the sky being lit up with, with gunpowder. And he could see, even in this terrible battle, he could see the American flag. What he called, as we know, the Star-Spangled Banner. And the whole song is about the, 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 the peace and strength that he got from the fact that he could see the banner of, of the Star-Spangled Banner still waving that the battle had not been lost. And it is from that event that we have our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, and we sing, the flag was still there. Francis Scott Key was, was finding strength in the fact that the flag had not gone down. We are doing something far more profound when we worship together. Beloved, When we gather, we lift the banner of Christ for each other. The banner of Christ for the world. That they can know and see Christ is here. His power of reconciliation and unity and his presence are undeniable. Simply showing up says to the world, Our Lord is risen, he reigns, and he is all you need. We gather together to announce to the world, hope is here. Love is here. Forgiveness is here. Life is here. Freedom is here. We announce Christ is here. Friend, Christ's banner waves today. Paul says in the book of Romans these words, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, the banner of Christ is raised. Salvation is in him, whether it is in something temporal or whether it is about your eternal hope. Have you taken hold of Christ? Confess him as Lord. Let us hold him up for one another that we might all persevere. Grace be with you. Amen.